0: Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, we're going to be talking about genetically modified organisms today, and uh, to that end, we have the wonderful journalist Tom Philpot on the phone with us. Um, in case you don't know about Tom, for five years, he served as a columnist, food writer, and senior food writer for the online environmental site Grist. That's where I first became aware of him. Um, he's also a co-founder of Maverick Farms, the Center for Sustainable Food Education in Valley Cruces, North Carolina. And before moving to the farm in 2004, Philpot worked as a financial journalist in Mexico City and in New York york most recently writing daily dispatches on the stock market as equity research editor for reuters.com his work on food politics has appeared in newsweek gastronomica and the guardian and uh tom welcome to the program once more thanks for joining us again
2: Thanks for having me, Katie.
1: Oh, it's a, it's always a pleasure. So, Tom, we're going to talk about GMO crops because, um, for one thing, uh, Nate or Nathaniel Johnson, I should say, wrote a long series of articles for um, Grist. Um, and basically, uh, his conclusion was, what's the big deal? And so, what's the problem with GMO crops? Why should we be all hot and bothered about them?
2: Well, I think that there are a few different things we should think about. One... I think the biggest one we have to think about is the way that they, they have been used, the way that they have sort of taken their place on the agricultural landscape. And, you know, to, to make a long story short, um, essentially our most, our biggest and most important crops in the United States are corn and soybeans. They cover, you know, more than half of U.S. farmland. Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. is, just, you know, the globe's biggest producer of corn by a factor of, you know, two or three, we wow. produce about 40% of the world's corn. Um, so, you know, these are these are huge crops, huge markets, and, um, you know, another big crop, but not nearly as big as those two, is cotton. Right. We, you know, we're obviously a major cotton producer. And those three crops, essentially 100% of them are GMO. Um, and, um, you know, something close to upwards of 90% of them in the United States are GMO. So this is a huge market for the companies that produce GMO seeds. Um, and, I, you know, I think it, um, it has to be said over and over again that the same companies that produce GMO seeds are also the dominant producers of pesticides, um, and by that I mean herbicides and insecticides, um, on the planet. These are huge companies like Syngenta, like the most famous one of all, Monsanto like Dow mm-hmm. Chemical,
0: mm-hmm.
2: DuPont, DuPont right. you know, all these companies have a foot, um, a big foot in, in both, of those, both of those fields. And as a result of that, I think, um, the way that the technology's been used has been essentially as to, you know, for insecticidal or weed suppression purposes. And so, you know, basically you've got two... Traits on the market. Um, you've got crops that are engineered to withstand herbicides, and so what that means is that you know when farmers plant their crops, when farmers plant you know Roundup Ready corn, as it's called, they're able to spray herbicides, spray the herbicide Roundup on it even after the crop has emerged. It right, doesn't hurt the crop, but it kills all the weeds. And the other trait is DT, which is a natural. It's a it's a um, microbial. Uh, Naturally occurring pesticide. It's a, a soil um, microbe mm-hmm. that uh, kills certain bugs, and um, these companies have isolated a gene from it and put it into corn and cotton, um, and and the corn and cotton plants themselves kill certain certain bugs, and so they're engineered for their own with their own pesticide. And so these are the these are the two ways that they've been used so far. And they've been used over in a huge expanse of farmland. Um, and they've also, in other places where they grow lots of corn and soy, like Argentina
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: and, and now Brazil, um, the same traits, the same crops are, are also being grown. And the problem with it is that when you, you know, this is just, you know, basic ecology. When you take, um, you know, a single species like a corn plant and put it over... You know, literally millions of acres. I think we grow something like 90 million acres of corn in the United States. Um, and so most of it is Roundup Ready and BT. Most of it has mm-hmm. both those traits. Right. And so what you're doing is you're applying the same herbicide year after year after year, and it's inevitable and predictable that some <laughs> weeds are going to survive that herbicide and pass those genes, pass their genes on to. Their progeny, and so you're going to get Roundup-ready weeds. You're going to get weeds that are able to resist Roundup, and that's happened. And then, you know, with B.T., now B.T. is only in corn. It's not in soybeans, corn and cotton. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're still talking about vast expanses of land that have B.T., corn on them, and a certain insect, a certain pesky insect called the Western corn borer, Has evolved resistance to that to to that, and so as a result, farmers are applying more insecticides. And so, I think that you know, sort of my rejoinder to Nate Johnson is that you know, basically, we've created the situation where we've allowed these companies to put us, you know, kind of against their own promises on this ever-accelerating pesticide treadmill. So farmers apply more and more and get less and less benefit from them, and the the companies themselves, of course, make out like bandits because they're selling not only the seeds but also the, uh, the chemicals that accompany them.
1: Right, right. Um, well, in this, uh, in your response to Nate Johnson, um, which ran in Grist, you, you point out that this is uh, what you just said here, a, a carnival game scheme, an industry that lives by trumpeting elusive promises while quietly profiting from old tricks. And I, to me, that was almost the most telling point of the entire argument, which is that these guys have sold a tremendous bill of goods to uh, farmers around the world. And um, and they promised uh, much greater things than just uh, protection against the corn borer and um, weeds. They promised to create crops that would use less water. They promised to create crops that would self-fertilize. Um, you know, there were a whole gamut of traits that supposedly were in the pipeline uh, that were going to revolutionize agriculture as we know it, and uh, yet none of those things have materialized. And that, to me, is, you know, this is where the promises of these companies... Um, you know, become so hollow because you've, you know, first of all, you've developed these resistance in both pests and weeds, and you haven't produced anything that, for example, uh, is less, uses less water, which is really where we need to be going. So um, do you want to comment on that? I mean, let's let's expand yeah. on that a little bit.
2: I, I think you're exactly right, and and that has been true from the start. So from the start, you know, we've had, we from the, you know, the, the technology starts in the 80s, their um, success is, and, you know, successfully um, getting genes into other, you know, moving genes from one species to another and creating a trade that works. Uh, successes start in the 80s. Deregulation of it starts in the 90s. We got our first GMO crops in 1996, mm-hmm. and they, they spread like wildfire through the Midwest, um, and, and, and for good reason. I mean, if, you, if you're a farmer, and I'm telling you that you know basically you don't, you don't have to worry about weeds anymore. I like, right. It's this very simple weed control tool. And as far as uh, pests, and the western corn borer has been a, a pest for a long time. Um, you know, as far as pests goes, don't even worry about it. Your plants themselves are going to be their own pesticides. Um, it's a, extremely alluring.
1: Oh yeah, because I mean opposition. that stuff costs a lot of money. Let's make that point. It's not and like it fertilizer and pesticides it's, and all that stuff is cheap. It ain't cheap.
2: Yeah, and you know, um, doing what would what you might call um, integrated weed management um, is a lot harder and and more challenging than just spraying a single herbicide a, a, a few times a year. Mm-hmm. And so these things these these things spread like wildfire through. Through the Midwest and through cotton country in the South, and um, but meanwhile, you know this is happening, and we're hearing about um, you know we're going to have crops that have higher yields. We're going to have crops yeah. that use less nitrogen. We're going to have crops that can grow in salt tolerant, you know, in uh, salty soils. We're going to use less crops, like you say, that, um, that are, are drought tolerant, that right. can survive with less water. And these Thomases are. St- Still being made today. We're still hearing about this. You know, down the road we're gonna we're gonna be getting this stuff, and I am beginning to wonder if we ever are. And the reason is, so you know, I, you see this in other things in Act Two. Like you see this and I know you've covered the corn ethanol mm-hmm. um, si- situation before, and it, with corn ethanol, we you know we there's critiques of it that it's it's moving crops from the food supply and putting them into the gasoline supply, and that's taking food out of people's mouths, and the, the industry's response is, well, don't worry about that. We're going to develop cellulosic ethanol that doesn't need um, sugary um, things like corn seeds. What it, what it needs is just plant matter. We're, we're going to harvest, we're going to create ethanol from plant matter of corn waste or grass that uh, people can't eat, Right, and it's going to be great but it never happens. We keep this, you know, the technology is always five years away. And I think something similar is happening with GMOs where we've got the reality that isn't very good, but we've got this promise that, you know, just, you know, we're we're a technology breakthrough away from it, it being great. And, and, and we're still hearing that. And I think the reason, you know, the question comes up, why have they not delivered on this stuff? Why is there not, a great drought tolerant corn or a uh, nitrogen use efficiency engineered soybean mm-hmm. or something like that. And the reason is, I think, that um, genetics are a lot more complicated than they thought when they started the project. And we are not, human life on, on planet Earth does not correspond, you know, genes and traits do not correspond on a one to one basis what I mean is that it's true that you can isolate a gene that makes a plant resist a certain herbicide. That's been proven, it's been done. But the way that a plant takes up water or the way that a plant uses nitrogen and converts nitrogen into the growth of biomass, these are extremely complex processes. They're right. not governed by a single gene they're governed by a complex suite of genes that we have not untangled or figured out, and for that reason, I think this this industry has not been able to produce that stuff. And I don't, and you know, when I look into what Monsanto is doing, uh, I am getting the idea that they are quietly moving away from GMOs and moving in different directions, um, even as they even as they trumpet. These discoveries down the road. <laughs> um, they, and, and I think they're, they're kind of in a cash cow situation. They're kind of like a, in a situation like Microsoft, where the, Microsoft has this cash cow product. It's Office Suite and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's operating system. But it's, you know, it's not very good. The industry is moving in a different direction and they're throwing all kinds of stuff on the wall and they have been for years to see what sticks and they haven't been able to figure out what sticks. But they they've got this cash cow that keeps the whole thing going forward. Sure, I think Monsanto might be entering a situation like that where it's you know basically Roundup Ready and BT traits and new combinations of them and stacking you know putting more uh, genes to make uh, plants resistant to more herbicides and things like that are how they make their money. But the innovation you know, they're, they're, they're struggling to find something, some other way of innovation because the GMO stuff isn't really working for them.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's really some very interesting stuff. And I, I wonder, you know, um, GMOs on the face of it, I mean, they sounded great. I mean, there was another response to uh, Nate Johnson's series uh, that, you know, promoted the use of GMOs and that in poor countries where there's less uh, opportunities um, for, you know, having a lot of equipment um you know, ways to use the soil differently and so forth. GMOs have been very successful. But the thing that uh, interests me is that, like, I remember seeing a documentary recently about, um, you know, how Monsanto introduced or one of the seed companies introduced a genetically modified corn or cotton. And, um, and it really was not as drought tolerant as local uh, hybridized varieties. And so, I'm curious about, you know, like this gene planting thing, you know, was like, "Woo, this is so fantastic. We're on the cusp of like blah blah blah." And yet basic hybridization is can be in many cases even more effective than planting genes, and I wonder uh why farmers have um who are starting to have to use different and more pesticides per acre or more herbicides per acre are not embrace are going back into that sort of that fold of just going for regular old hybridization and, and enough with this GMO stuff. Why do you think that is, that the farmers are so um, – is that a labor issue? Because, you know, there aren't that many people farming anymore. So one of the things about GM crops is that they, they reduce labor, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think they – well, they do – they do when they work. Um, if you have a, if you're a farmer, is managing a field that uh, with roundup ready corn and soybeans, you're able to ma- manage much more land on your own if you right. have a very simple weed management strategy of, you know, I'm literally going to hire the crop duster to come three times a year, mm-hmm. three times a season, and wipe out all my weeds until I get a, a canopy up and, and weeds can't grow anymore. Um, and that's my weed management strategy. That that's great if it works, and you can you can manage more land. And I think it has um, helped drive the consolidation of farms, so the trend of farms of uh, farms getting bigger and bigger in in places like Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, the The problem is that when they don't work, and uh, when you get these roundup resistant weeds, um, then what was this great management tool, you know, suddenly you've got a disaster in your hands, especially if you've got tons and tons of land. And, you know, we see right. that, the, where, um, the reasons I don't fully understand the, where, where um, the resistant weeds developed first was in the South, you mm-hmm. um, know, in cotton country. And, um, and, you know, you can go back into the trade. I know you're a reader of the, of the Farm trade press, just like I am. Yeah. And you go back to 2005, 2006, um, you know, real uh, frustrate you know, you get articles about extremely frustrated farmers trying to, you know, suddenly trying to figure out how to manage weeds again when they've got their crop up, not killing the weeds that, uh, that it's supposed to kill. Right. They, they can't apply other uh, pesta herbicides directly, and so they're literally out there holding weeds again or you know, figuring out a way, a very labor-intensive way to apply herbicide between rows and so you're not hurting crop. Right. Um, and so and th- that situation is moving uh, north very rapidly. I was just in Wisconsin giving a talk at a university, uh, University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, Whitewater. It's pretty far north. And I was hearing that just the growing season before, I was talking to a couple of farmers, um, that, Roundup resistance crop uh, resistance weeds had shown up there for the first time, uh-huh. and um, and so it, it's happening. And what, um, I think what what's driving the mentality now is that there is another set of products that are making their way through the USDA's regulatory system mm-hmm. that are resistant not just to Roundup but also to these older herbicides like 2,4 D
1: right which and, is part um, of agent I, orange I there's a big yeah. there's lots of hype about that how
2: terrified there's we should all of, be lots of hype about that and the thing about it is i think it is uh, for farm for for farmers in these situations that have these huge farms that are kind of uh, come to rely on this easy weed management regime i think they're you know very hotly anticipating uh, the deregulation of these crops <laughs> <laughs> so they can That's get their amazing. hands on them and so now instead of just uh spraying Roundup, to con- very mix of Roundup and 2,4-D, right? and, you know, at least for a couple of years, um, they can take care of, of their weed problem again, and they'll get easy again. Um, and, you know, here's, here's the thing, when Monsanto came out with Roundup Ready in the 90s, there was a lot of talk about resistant weeds. Yeah. And what Monsanto said was, it's not going to happen, it's impossible, because the, the way that Roundup works, the way that it kills plants, it would be impossible for plants to grow resistance to it. Well, that ended up being obviously wrong. Right. And now the companies are saying that, look, when you've got two herbicides um, hitting the crop or hitting, you know, a set of weeds, there's no way it's simply impossible for resistance to develop. And there was this this study in um, kind of Penn state uh, land grant university, not like a hippie hotbed or anything like that. Right. right. (laughs) They found that, that these double resistant crops would very rapidly weeds would very rapidly grow resistance to both the herbicides, and we'd be on the same treadmill. So farmers right. would only be buying themselves a few years of easy weed control, and then they'd be right back in the same situation. And and so I think that you know who can tell the future, but that that scenario seems very very likely.
1: It certainly and
2: does. I, and farmers are, you know, I think being sold another bill of goods. And you know, like I said, when when you get in a situation where you're managing five thousand acres, ten thousand acres, you, you know, you come to rely, you come to rely on this very labor efficient system. Absolutely. And we'll at it to keep it going.
1: Of course, um, Tom. We have to take a short break. Um, Evan, my engineer, is about to play a sponsor drop, but we'll be right back with Tom Philpot talking more about GMOs. So stay tuned and uh, enjoy the rest of the conversation. You're listening to Kill Me in the Summertime by Dead Stars on heritageradionetwork.org. This
0: is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. Calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cain encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to canefive.com.
2: This
1: is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And we're talking GMOs with uh, the excellent journalist Tom Philpott, who writes now for Mother Jones, but was formerly at Grist for many years. Um, So, Tom, let's let's switch the conversation just a little bit, because um, in one of your articles, you profiled a farmer who is using... A sort of new slash old technique on his farm and it mirrors a study that was published uh, in 2012 from the University of Iowa um, and basically it's using uh, cover crops in between your rows and, and in between your planting seasons um, has slashed the you know can help slash the use of synthetic fertil- uh, fertilizers and herbicides and uh, the, the guy that you profiled um, a farmer named uh, I forget what Brant, somebody Brant David Brant David Brant yeah. Brandt, um, <clears throat> That he had managed to um, not only, uh, you know, reduce his use of of, uh, reliance on chemicals, but also had grown topsoil, which is something that um, people don't talk about a lot. But topsoil is something that is, you know, is is, is a non sort of almost a non-renewable resource without some serious management techniques. And um, so but. What I thought was really interesting is when I read about that study in, from Iowa State, this was about a year or so ago in Drovers, and there was a really interesting response to it in the readership. I mean, some people were all for it, but basically it says, you know, use, change your crop rotation, add another crop into your rotation so you're not just alternating between one and two crops. You go into three crops, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and, the, and this farmer writes in and says, it's going to be hard to graze livestock if you insist on plowing down alfalfa and clover for nitrogen. And then <clears throat> he says, I can't see how it will pay if we go from three cash crops every four years to three cash crops every 15 years. I don't even know what he's meaning there. And then he says, and then finally he says, I get pretty sick and tired of being told I'm not farming right, that I'm ruining the planet for yuppie dreamers like this guy. I mean, this guy was like, (laughs) you know, literally a farmer himself. I mean, it's not like he was just making this crap up. I mean, it was unbelievable. But that is kind of typical of response to changes in strategy. And I don't, I doubt that the farmer who wrote that is somebody who's managing even 10,000 acres. He probably has a couple of hundred acres, but he's like, he's married to the technology. He is married to the ideas of, you know, using these management practices sold by Monsanto. And I, and I have to say, I think it's going to be a very hard fix to, um, yes. You know, to move people away from that and into, for instance, uh, David Brandt's strategy, which is obviously much more holistic.
2: Yeah, and so David Brandt is managing about a thousand acres, which is uh you know, it's a it's a really good amount of land. Um and he's in in Ohio. Um and he he wouldn't exactly cut count as a small farm in Ohio, but he's not he's not big either, you know. Right. Probably we could consider him a proper mid sized farmer. You know, a thousand acres is is respectable. Oh, yeah. And the thing about it is that someone like David Brandt or this Iowa State University study you're referring to, which took place over 11 years on on test plots, um, right. at you know you know real world conditions. Yeah, um, in at, Iowa at Ohio State outside Ames. <laughs> yeah. Um, so these these methods, you know, I, I like to think of them in sharp contrast to the GMO seed industry which is, you know, holding out these promises that we're going to, you know, we're going to come up with a crop, we're going to come up with a seed that allows you to use less nitrogen on your um, on your fields you know, Sunday. It's coming. It's coming soon. Um, and so, you, you know, you've got this, this promise out in the air. And, you know, I've talked to people, I've done a lot of work on nitrogen and talked to people about it, um, scientists. And they say that, you know, it's possible with lots of work and lots of research, that you could get, you could come up with a GMO that marginally saved nitrogen, marginally, a creative plant that needed marginally less nitrogen. Maybe down the road, with lots and lots of research and investment. What David Brandt is doing, um, specifically in Ohio, is right now he is using about 20% of the nitrogen that his neighbors use per acre. So this is 80% reduction that he's achieving now in the field right there's no promise of this sunday it's like Um, and it's it's not a marginal savings it's a massive savings right um and so i think the question that you're posing that, that i think is the million dollar question is if what he's doing is so successful if it's you know, as I, put, as I show in my article, you know, he's getting, in regular years, he's getting the same yields as his neighbors.
1: Right, and in drought and the, years, he's doing even better.
2: Yeah, in the drought year of 2012, he got 90% of his normal yield, and his neighbors got between 0 and 50%, that right. is, you know, between complete crop failure and about half their yield. Um, and so if this thing is so successful, then why isn't everyone doing it? And I think that's a really good question. I think part of it gets back to what we were saying before about you're married to this system, and you want the next. You know, it's, it's radical. The, the, the idea is, is radical that you're going to add another crop. You've been doing corn and soy your entire adult your you know entire adult life. If you're a 55 year old farmer, right? Um, you know, one thing one of the funny things about that response in drovers is that the kind of you know having a you know a, a third crop in the rotation is not some new hippie idea. It's how <laughs> Iowa and all those states worked until very recently.
1: Exactly. They, you know, until they GM had, crops, I would imagine, right?
2: They had they had oats. They have they were a huge producer of winter wheat. Um, right. they virtually have none of those things anymore. They're mm-hmm. only producing two crops, corn and soy. Wow. wheat um, was wheat was very common in, in Iowa. Um and uh and so um so the, the, the point being that people are married to these systems, and I think it, it, it also uh, bears stating that the federal farm policy um, goes very much in the direction of the status quo. Because if you're, you know, if you're a farmer in, in, let's say, Ohio, you're one of David Brandt's neighbors, and it's 2012 and there's the worst drought in recorded history in the Midwest, <laughs> and you've got a complete crop failure, or you get 50% of your normal yield, um, normally you would look over the fence of your neighbor who's got this great thriving crop and go, well, what the hell is he doing? I want to do that because mm-hmm. I've, I've just been wiped out, or, you know, I've just suffered these severe losses. Um, under federal crop policy, that, those farmers that had those losses didn't, didn't really suffer very much economically. Because they um, have and crop insurance. They have crop, they've got the highly subsidized crop insurance, right. subsidized at very many different levels, and then they've got you know countercyclical payments and other other farm programs. Mm-hmm. And you know I'm someone who who very strongly believes that farmers that society does need to take some of the risks for farmers, so there should be farm programs. Right. But we should ask the question: Who are these? You know, who is being whose interests are being served? By the program, and if the program is keeping farmers in this incredibly resource intensive um, very unbiodiverse you know two crops yeah if if it's keeping them in, in 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 that system, then that's really benefiting the chemical companies that sell them all these these chemicals, and so I think that the answer to your question of how to get people to switch to brant to david brant style or you know it'll it'll be different in different regions but in sort of low input, high productivity systems like David Brandt's, so or like the one described in the Iowa State University study, right? I think it's. I think federal policy has to nudge it nudge in that direction. Mm-hmm. And I've got a simple and easy way for it to do that, and mm-hmm. that is this. Um, one of the things that David Brandt's fields um, that I, you know, I walked his fields with him and I talked to soil scientists at Ohio State, right? Um, people with his NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service. We work with David, and they confirm this: that he will he will take over a field. He'll run a field from from a neighbor, and it'll have a zero point five percent organic soil organic matter content. Uh
1: uh-huh.
2: Very very small and very very bad. Right. This is a, a soil that's been stripped of organic matter, that's prone to flooding, that's going to cake up and not hold water when it rains. Right and really be vulnerable to drought. And with his methods of growing cover crops and sowing them in um, and, you know, plowing them in um, and planting his cash crop into the mat of his cover crops, doing it for just a few growing seasons and never tilling. He he does, never tills, uh, always cover crops. Right. Um, He's getting soil organic matter content up to 1%, 2%, 3% very fast. Right. When it goes go to three percent, that's a sixfold increase in soil and organic matter. Yes. And so, my proposal is when I'm, you know, Agri- agriculture secretary to the world or <laughs> agriculture to when you're
1: king to, to planet Earth,
2: <laughs> we're going to we're going to we're going to pay farmers uh, based on how much organic matter they manage to um, to to generate, uh, grow into their soil, mm-hmm. to increase into their soil. And then you know, over a certain level, you you know, it's I would say over, you know, once you get to like seven or eight percent, is you know, it's really hard to get more. And so when you get to that level, then you sort of get you know some some way of compensation for maintaining that organic matter because you can lose it really fast. Right. And if you if we did that, so if that we had to and we now have the technology to measure this stuff, and if we did that, there would be all sorts of positive knock-on effects. For society as a whole we would have a much more resilient agriculture when yes. rains hit heavy rains hit there'd be much less flooding much yeah. less soil loss to flooding when drought hits we would get much more of our yields uh, we'd have less price spikes uh, mm-hmm. water would be cleaner mm-hmm. uh, our aquifers
1: might be more replenished I'm thinking yeah. like if it's because the water is held by the soil much more effectively when it has all that organic material.
2: That's right. Yeah. that's exactly right.
1: Anyway, Tom, I'm sorry to say we have to wrap it up here, but uh, I'm uh, really delighted that you'll be joining me next week in the studio. And um, and not only that, but we do have um, Chuck Benbrook joining us on the phone. So um, very exciting. so yeah this will be really fun we can talk a little bit more about the science and get a little more nerdy about it but um, maybe in the future you and I can have a little chit chat about the farm bill which I haven't really explored with anybody um, since it's been signed into law so um, that's that's an exciting opt- uh, you know opportunity for the future um, but in the meantime I'm looking forward to welcoming you to Roberta's and to the studio and uh, we'll see you next week and thank you folks for listening and thanks Tom for joining me and thanks to my sponsor Kane one. See you next
2: week. Thanks for having me, and I cannot wait to be after.
1: <laughs> I know, it's going to be fun. Okay, Tom, take care. Have a good week. See you then. All right, you too. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network.